So the Bible reading is 1 Samuel chapter 9 up until 1 Samuel chapter 10 verse 1. And on your church Bibles, it's page 278. There was a Benjaminite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bechorath, the son of Appiah of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome as a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, were lost. And Kish said to his son Saul, Take one of the servants with you and go and look for the donkeys. So he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and through the area around Shalisha, but they did not find them. They went on into the district of Shalim, but the donkeys were not there. Then he passed through the territory of Benjamin, but they did not find them. When they reached the district of Zuf, Saul said to the servant who was with him, Come, let's go back, or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. But the servant replied, Look, in this town there is a man of God. He is highly respected, and everything he says comes true. Let's go there now. Perhaps he will tell us what way to take. Saul said to his servant, If we go, what can we give the man? The food in our sacks is gone. We have no gift to take to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered him again. Look, he said, I have a quarter of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God so that he will tell us what way to take. Formerly in Israel, if someone went to inquire of God, they would say, come, let us go to the seer. Because the prophet of today used to be called a seer. Good, Saul said to his servant, come, let's go. So they set out for the town where the man of God was. As they were going up the hill to the town, they met some young women coming out to draw water, and they asked them, is the seer here? He is, they answered, he's ahead of you. Hurry now, he has just come to our town today, for the people have a sacrifice at the high place. As soon as you enter the town, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. The people will not begin eating until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterwards, those who are invited will eat. Go up now. You should find him about this time. They went up to the town, and as they were entering it, there was Samuel coming towards them on his way up to the high place. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. Saul approached Samuel in the gateway and asked, Would you please tell me where the seer's house is? I am the seer, Samuel replied. Go up ahead of me to the high place, for today you are to eat with me. And in the morning I will send you on your way, and will tell you all that is in your heart. As for the donkeys you lost three days ago, do not worry about them. They have been found. And to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and your whole family line? Saul answered, But am I not a Benjaminite? From the smallest tribe of Israel, 
And is my, not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? Then Samuel brought Saul and his servant into the hall and seated them at the head of those who were invited, about 30 in number. Samuel said to the cook, bring the piece of meat I gave you, the one I told you to lay aside. So the cook took up the thigh with what was on it and set it in front of Saul. Samuel said, here is what has been kept for you. Eat, because it was set aside for you for this occasion from the time I said I have invited guests. And Saul dined with Samuel that day. After they came down from the high place to the town, Samuel talked with Saul on the roof of his house. They rose about daybreak, and Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Get ready, and I will send you on your way. When Saul got ready, he and Samuel went outside together. As they were going down to the edge of the town, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to go on ahead of us. And the servant did so. But you stay here for a while, so that I may give you a message from God. Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? Please keep your Bibles open. Now, the children are going to go to their little group. Uh, We're going to be looking at uh, that little section that Debbie just read to us. And uh, the big question to ask is this one. How big is your God? Now, for most people, God is very useful backup. Life is all ours to live, so we're in the driving seat. But it's no harm to look in God's direction and give him a nod every now and then, just in case things happen outside our control, we wave to him for help. I guess it's easy to have a small view of God. That is in the back seat, just in case we need him to come to the front. But the Bible's job is to always help us see that God is far, far bigger than we think. And rather than follow behind, ready to catch us, uh, the Bible tells us he's always in front, working his plans, and, and we're caught up uh, in what he does. You might have caught that in the Bible story that Debbie read. And the Bible tells us, the Bible tells us that because the Bible writers uh, are convinced that we will live more wisely if we understand how much God is really in control of uh, what goes on. And in this passage, you see how he controls the ordinary things. You see how he chooses a king. And you see how he exercises his control with real kindness. We'll come to that at the end. But first, we see how he controls uh, the ordinary. Now, last week we saw a group of people go up to Samuel, who's a prophet, and to ask him, to give them a king. So you'd expect this chapter to be all about Samuel searching for the right candidate. Instead, you're taken way out into the country and you're instead shown somebody searching for donkeys. And it's a bit random, isn't it? He can't find his donkeys. 
his servant gives him a bit of advice, lends him a bit of money. They then go to some women who tell them where to go next. That's got nothing to do with God. And as you look at the passage, and most of the stories, so it, it goes on 1 to 14, where God is mentioned. It goes on from then on, from verse 18 onwards, and God isn't mentioned. And you wouldn't think that God's anywhere in the whole kind of people going out to dinner and all that kind of thing. It's just Samuel and Brokaw Saul. But then, you see in between that, verses 15 to 17. And that little bit is specially there to show us that uh, <clears throat> uh, although uh, you... Uh, 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 can think of it as just a kind of ordinary process for a person losing his donkeys and then someone telling him where to find them and that they've been found already. What you find in verses 15 to 17 in that little slot is telling you what's going on in all these random things is that God is delivering a king. You could go from verse 14 to verse 18 without skipping a beat. And to see it as just one ordinary run of events. But then Shuhon in comes verses 15 and 17 to tell you, no, this is God responsible for every little detail that's going on. The random loss of donkeys isn't quite as random as you might think. Now that gives you a very different way of looking at the ordinary, doesn't it? Uh, when you're like sore, you're tired, you're hungry, the bread's run out. Uh, you're caught up in a traffic jam, you're not getting anywhere. Or you're uh, uh, snookered by a tube strike and it happens to be raining. All these uh, little frustrations are well planned to bring us to uh, God's purposes for our lives which in the end are to use those things to fashion us into the likeness of his son so random things are never random things and they're always part of God's program to bring about his purpose and achieve what he wants so he's never at the back catching up with us he's always at the front and we need to have a bigger idea of God, a bigger view of him than we often have as we look at what's going on in our lives. But the second thing you see him doing is he chooses a king. And you see that in uh, verse 16, don't you? When <clears throat> uh, the donkeys uh, deliver uh, Saul to that intended destination, uh, God tells Samuel, verse 16, About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, anoint him ruler over my people Israel. And so that's what Samuel does. Privately in chapter 10, verse 1, then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance. That's private, just Samuel and Saul. You get a much bigger public occasion in uh, chapter 10, verse 24, 
and you see that all the people now are going to be shouting, long live the king. And then finally you get to the coronation, which is not going to happen until chapter 11, verse 15. So it's still down the track. But however long it takes, what that is there to tell us is that once God has privately anointed someone to be the ruler of his people, doesn't matter how much time goes by, that is exactly what is going to happen. Nothing will get in the way. With God's control, the private event guarantees the public event, guarantees the final coronation. Nothing will stop it. In fact, as you read on chapter 10, you will see everything along the way confirms it. That uh, Saul is God's man for that job. Now, we wouldn't dare make that assumption with our rulers. In England, we have different people in line to the throne simply because we need contingencies in case the first one doesn't make it. But when God sets up a king at the start of chapter 10, the outcome is never in doubt, which is why at the end of chapter 10, in the very last verse, when some people question uh, Saul's selection, uh, some scoundrels said, how can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts. Well, that's why those people are described as scoundrels or, uh, in today's language, stupid, because it's crazy to question if God's anointed can really be the king when it just works like this with God. If it starts off in that way, that's what will happen at the end. Fairly soon in this book, we're going to be reading how another man called David was anointed the king. Now, you read the rest of 1 Samuel, which is all about him, and you see that he is nowhere near becoming king. He's actually instead very close to becoming killed. But the point is that although he doesn't become king in this book, if the private anointing has taken place, then you can guarantee the public coronation will come, and whatever tries to stop that won't get in the way. Now, that little part of the Bible is really helpful to have in the back of your mind when you read other bits of the Bible. So that, let me, for example, just ask you, if you wouldn't mind, flipping forward to page 543 to uh, Psalm 2. Uh, page 543 in Psalm 2. And you need to catch the force of this. Uh, let me read these wor wor words to you because uh, they make the point uh, in a very clear way. Why do the nations conspire and the rulers plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their chains, throw off their shackles. Ha, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger, and he terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king. And that's, if you keep on reading to the end of that psalm, you see it's far better to live in recognition of that than to say that you can throw off 
his rule. You see, from the moment that God appoints his king, resistance is laughable. And these bits of the Bible, 3,000 years ago, a thousand years before Jesus comes, are early pickups on how we should be recognizing Jesus as uh, the king that God is getting us ready to meet. Saul is just the start of the journey that's going to lead to him. And we need to get a bigger picture of God and realize that rather than thinking that he's in the back following our lead, helping us with our choices. Our lives are really about following his king and our choices need to follow his lead or else we will be resisting that king. God chooses the king. Thirdly, God controls but always with kindness. Now, you know that Saul is given a big build-up. If you look at chapter, two, uh, chapter 9, verse 2, you see that uh, uh, Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. He was a head taller than anyone else. So you go to chapter 10, verse 24, and boy, he is impressive to look at. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like this among all the people. This is one impressive guy. But as you go through the book of Samuel, you're going to very quickly learn that looks aren't everything. And as you see Saul's character in this chapter, you will begin to see the personality flaws coming out. So he's more a bit like that. He's not the leader who's brimming with confidence. If you look at chapter 10, verse 22, when they look for him, he's hidden himself among the supplies, or the other version says, amongst the baggage. He's a leader in hiding from uh, uh, everybody else. It's not that his brimming confidence is actually probably more likely that his confidence has been shaken. After all, impressive as he is, his job is to be going off and looking for lost donkeys. Now, I don't want to read anything into the text, but you do wonder whether the reason he's been sent off because he's the one who lost him in the first place. <laughs> but let's not play guessing games. What we do find out is actually he can't even do that. He can't achieve the mission that he's been sent out to uh, achieve. He's failed. And when he's stuck for ideas, what happens? He's led by his servant, some king. He's got to borrow money from his servant to go and take the prophet a gift. He hasn't got any of his own. And when he meets Samuel, look what he, how he describes himself. In verse 21, he says, The nobody, am I not a Benjaminite from the smallest tribe of Israel? Is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? And then, of course, you've got these worthless guys I've already told you about in chapter 10, verse 27, saying that, well, he's not going to amount to very much. Okay? That's Saul, isn't it? 
a man who's got uh, uh, very uh, little going for him. How is someone like this ever going to be rising to the occasion of being a king? He's got a big job to do. If you know how God's been leading the people until now, you know that actually this is a guy who's going to have to fill God's shoes in leading God's people. How's he ever going to uh, rise to that challenge, given his weakness? And the answer is that God builds him up, doesn't he? Again and again and again. As you see this go through, you see how God's kindness uh, is pointing at Saul all the time. So he gets top table treatment in verse 22 and 23. Um, uh, minute he says, uh, who am I? I'm just a, 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 a small, unimportant person. And Samir brings Saul and his servant into the hall, seats them at the head of those who are invited. And then he tells the cook, bring the piece of meat I gave to you, the one I told you to lay aside, the special portion. He's also uh, assured of uh, Samuel's uh, counsel and help in chapter 10, verse 10. Um, sorry, in chapter uh, 10, I will tell you what to do. Where does he say that? Chapter 10, verse 8, thank you. Um, uh, go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I'll surely come down and sacrifice. Uh, and you must wait seven days until I come. And I'll tell you what you are to do. I'm that help you. And then God works to change him. If you look at chapter six, uh, chapter 10, verse 6. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you. You will prophesy with them. And you'll be changed into a different person. And in verse 9. As Saul turned... Uh, turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. And all these signs were fulfilled. And then you get three different things happen between, in chapter 10 between verses 2 to 7. We didn't read them. But they're all different ways of God saying, uh, I'm earmarking you out as someone special. And then when the whole nation comes together at the end of chapter 10, uh, and they go through a different kind of selection process. This time, not a private word from Samuel that everybody else has got to take and believe. No, this time in front of everybody, forget the private word, they have a completely different selection system. They use lots. And again, the arrows come down to Saul. So in a completely different uh, uh, way, Saul once more is identified as God's choice as king. So the control of God is constantly used in kindness to help Saul, who is weak to know that he is uh, God's man for that work. Therefore, when we read that Samuel then told them the ordinances of the kingdom, in other words, how this king thing is going to work, we need to recognize that is part of God's kindness. See, we've got a perverse way of thinking God's just in the business of giving orders because he just likes dominating us. But he is God and he can do that if he wants. 
But the point is, he always uses his authority, his control, to help us in our weakness. And we need to see it that way. Just like using a sat-nav as we were looking at in the children's slot. Uh, we can see that as uh, restrictive of all the roads that we can take. Uh, why have we got to take the next left? Why is there this set route that we are to follow? But most of us, if we recognize we're weak and we're geographically challenged and uh, we have uh, uh, got uh, our uh, compass all upside down, even if our name isn't Stephen Hanna, um, it is just true, isn't it, that we actually see satnavs as friends or maps if uh, we're in old currency. And that's exactly what God's ordinances are here. Uh, Sam has pointed out their weakness to follow God well in chapter 10, verses uh, 18 and 19. That's why they need these ordinances. Because um, uh, I brought, God says, I brought Israel up out of Egypt, delivered them from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you, but you have now rejected your God who sa saves you out of all your disasters and calamities, and you've said, no, appoint a king over us. So the ordinances of God are because these guys are weak and they want a king to be like the rest of the world. We're weak and we want to be like the rest of the world. That is why... God in his kindness gives us his ordinances. We don't fall into that trap. So, drawing that all together, what are the lessons that stand out? Well, my friends, if you're someone who's new to Christianity, let me ask you, is it seriously good to live in God's world where God has set a king that is going to run it and then we live our lives without acknowledging that reality? I might think, well, yeah, if there's anointing of Jesus, it happened privately, it happened a long time ago. But 2,000 years is nothing. If God has said something at the start... That's how the story will end. Isn't it wiser for us to pick up our Bibles and to realize from places like this that if God says someone's going to be king, that is what will be. All our doubts can be put away and from now on we can build our lives on that happening. It's to be stupid to say, can this person really ever be king over us one day? And we'd love to encourage you to live a new life with a new view of the world, with uh, Jesus as its king, and us learning how to live in the light of that reality. I'd love to chat with you about that afterwards, if you'd like, uh, for us to talk more. But uh, as well as understanding that uh, Jesus is uh, the king, uh, that uh, is uh, the reality uh, in our world. Let me also ask you, what happens if that isn't new to you? You've known all this, what's the take home for you? But I'm hoping that if you're used to the Bible, 
you realize that one of the ways to gain from the Bible is to learn humility in the way that we see what's going on. So in chapter 10, verse 19, I've just read that to you, how Samuel tells his people they got it wrong, they wanted to be like the rest of the world. And that ought to open us up to humbly see that actually that's what we're going to be like as well. And God is incredibly kind and he's given us written ordinances to help us to live under God's king. Now my friend, we'll only do that if we're humble enough to realize that uh, we are weak and therefore we need what God has given, not just through Samuel, but now through the whole Bible. There's the Bible is given to us to help us because we are weak people. Because we would much rather write our own script of how the king thing should operate between Jesus and us. We think actually, no, I think I'm comfortable with this particular way of living, so that's how I'll be living with this king. I'll call him king, but I'll be living with him uh, pretty much like the rest of the world. If I want to go to the gym, I'll go to the gym. If I want to do something else, I'll do something else. I'll spend my time the way I want to spend my time. Now to do that is to resist the king. And it is to say, I'm not going to have his fetters binding me. It is to do what Psalm 2 says, let me cast off this king. I don't want to be controlled by him anymore. And it is amazingly uh, humbling to realize that God's people, so-called, will be doing this in their way. Unless they hold on to those ordinances that God has given but what if you happen to be one of uh, those people who has had the stuffing knocked out of you by life? Uh, you're without confidence that you're uh, worth anything to God, and that he's involved in your comings and goings, that he's got any plans and purposes for you to fulfill. My friends, I'd love you to get a bigger view of God and his involvement in the little comings and goings and the frustrations and the events of your life. You aren't a nobody. By the death of Lord Jesus on the cross, he takes failures right up to the top table to feast with the great King of Kings. By his spirit, he can change you into a very different person. So you end up serving his purposes far more than you think you can. Can I suggest you seek him to do that? Or to put it a different way, to seek bags of grace for you in your weakness. Rather than go and hide behind the bags of your baggage, which is what we are so easily prone to do ourselves. Understand that God can do that with the least of the most unheard of tribes. 
And <clears throat> now he's looking at you. So let's be confident and grateful that here's a God who lifts up weakness to achieve his great purposes. Let's pray that God will help us take that in and uh, you can ask the questions that you'd like to. Our Father in heaven, you are so gracious in working out your purposes, using the ordinary events of life and giving us your written word to help us because we are weak. You give us grace to hide behind rather than needing to hide behind our baggage. Please help us to live with the guaranteed certainty that Jesus is the world's future king. And please help us to help others to prepare for his rule. And give us, we pray, grace to do that, for we are weak. Give us your word to do that. And give us the desire to do that for the glory of his great name. Amen.